Hey everyone, welcome to the Riverview Church Podcast. We hope that you're encouraged and inspired by today's message. We'd love for you to join us more frequently. So before we get started, why don't you take a moment to subscribe to our podcast? Here's today's message from Ryan Gagler. Good to have you here with us. And of course, welcome to those of you who are joining with us online in what has been a bit of a wild and windy Sunday, right? Look, it was clear for a bit of today, but then it, uh, it took a turn for the worse again. But hey, it's good to be together in church. And uh, I'm really excited today to be continuing our wisdom series. And we're gonna have a lot of fun exploring some extremely complex passages of Scripture as you do it in church. But what I thought we would do um, in order for us to explore this more fully, I wanted to actually do it in conversation. Now, it's hard for me to do that with everybody in the room, but we're going to do it in conversation. Now, what I need you to do, introverts, just take one deep breath in. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to find a conversation partner for tonight. I need you to find someone maybe you came to church with or someone sitting near you, and I want them to be your discussion partner for tonight. And we are going to kick off by getting to know one another. So I want you to find out what their name is, how long they've been coming to Riverview. And then I want you to discuss this. We're in a series on wisdom. I want you to discuss this and you've got two minutes to do it. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Take a couple of moments. And uh, if you're on the live stream, just comment. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Go for it. Keep going, introverts. You're doing great. Just 30 more seconds, 30 more seconds. All righty, all righty. Well, your best friends now, that's wonderful. And uh, hopefully you receive some uh, valuable wisdom and insight. In fact, I reckon I could probably just leave. We're done church. You've received your wisdom for tonight. I was uh, reflecting on some valuable uh, advice today and we were talking a lot about food this morning. I don't even know how that came up. And I was thinking some food advice. You know when you like get stuff out of the freezer and on the side there's like recommended cooking instructions? My piece of advice is, if in doubt, deep fry it. If in doubt, deep fry it. Don't, put, don't, don't do any of the other options, deep fry it. Now, I kind of say that part joking, but I'm part serious. Most of my cooking consists of creamy, crispy, oily things. And I am trying to expand uh, my repertoire a little bit, doing my very best. Uh, can we just get a quick and honest show of hands? How many people in the room would consider themselves a decent cook? Hey, I'm coming over to your house for dinner. Look, I'm, I'm not bad. I've got some of the foundations, but I'm uh, trying to build on that. And uh, over the last couple of months, I've been trying to explore a couple of extra recipes. And one of the recipes that I wanted to try out, you know, lots of older people make it. So I thought, how hard can it be? Is a good roast, a good roast. So I found this amazing recipe online. It was a pork roast with sage potatoes. And man, the picture looks so good. 
And so I got the uh, ingredients together. I went to the local grocery store, sorted it all out, prepared everything. And um, man, this recipe was a disaster. About three hours of preparation of cooking, my pork came out of the oven like a dog toy. It was rubbery, it was tasteless, and God bless my wife who ate it and just smiled anyway. Now, honestly, I still don't really know what happened, right? I'm sure you've had a cooking adventure like that where you follow every single step of the recipe, you put it in the oven for the right amount of time, you do all the things, and for whatever reason, things just don't turn out the way they should, right? You've had that happen before in cooking, but no doubt we've had that happen in life, right? Life isn't uh, as simple as A plus B equals C, but sometimes A plus B doesn't equal C, right? And I, I have no doubt that you've experienced this. Right, like good people have bad things happen to them. Righteous people suffer. The outcome doesn't match the input. This is just the reality of life. And maybe you've experienced that kind of unpredictability in and through your relationships. You know, you said and you did all the right things. You spoke with kindness and truth, but for whatever reason, the relationship just didn't work out. Or maybe you've uh, experienced that kind of uh, uncertainty in your finances where you made wise decisions and you invested intentionally, but for whatever reason, you end up worse off than when you started. Or maybe you've had that uncertainty in your health. And even though you've lived a life of quite good health, keeping in shape, you received a diagnosis that you weren't expecting. The reality is life doesn't always add up. You know, in the midst of all of our conventional wisdom, all of our human understandings, all of our uh, technological advances, sometimes life just doesn't add up. And today what I wanted to do is, is spend a little bit of time exploring together the book of Job. Woo, what a hoot. Now the Old Testament story of Job is an amazing portrait of our common and shared life experience. In fact, I would have to say that I think Job is probably one of the most real talk kind of books in the Bible. It explores topics like suffering and reason and perspective among many other things. And I really do believe that if we take the time to sit with this, to explore this, we can walk away with some really valuable insights and wisdom. So the title of this sermon, if you are taking notes, is Wisdom for When Wisdom Isn't Enough. Wisdom for when wisdom isn't enough. Now, before we launch off into the, uh, off the blocks into the book of Job, can I just say, disclaimer, this is an extraordinarily complex piece of Scripture. There's so many problematic bits. There's so many questions I still have, so many things I'm still figuring out, but that's actually okay. And I think it would be sad if we avoided ever talking about it because we don't have all the answers. So we're going to go there, we're going to explore this, and maybe you might walk out with more questions than you started, but hey, that's, that's fun. Now, secondly, uh, before we dive in, I also just want to acknowledge that for some of you in the room listening to this talk, right now you're experiencing extreme hardship, unexplained suffering and pain. And I want to just take a moment to acknowledge that and recognize that and say that I'm sorry that you're experiencing that. And I don't even want to try and pretend that I understand what you're going through because I don't. And many of the things I might talk about might just sound trivial to you. 
But I, I really hope and pray that whilst this sermon isn't gonna answer all of your questions neatly or take away all of your doubts, I really do hope and pray that this would create a space for us to talk openly about the things that are going on in our lives. Is that all right? You ready to go? Job 1, here we go. This is like the Star Wars scrolling text at the beginning. It's gonna locate us to the story. It says in Job 1, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and daughters, uh, uh, seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. You ready for Ryan's paraphrase? Job is the man. Job's the man, he's blessed, he's got it all, he's done all the right things. I mean, he is, the Bible records him as the greatest man in the East. Put that on your resume, right? Not bad. Now, as we continue to read the story, we come across a, an extremely unexpected moment. And it's kind of like we are transported into the courtroom of Judge Judy. This is Yahweh's courtroom. The cases are real, the rulings are final. And as we read on, we discover God, along with His counsel, is approached by uh, a figure that is introduced to us as Hasatan. Turn to your neighbor and say, Hasatan. Get a good ha. Yeah, that's real good. <laughs> now, I think it's important to mention that in the original language, Hasatan is a title, not necessarily a name. Hasatan is the title of an adversary or an accuser. In fact, in Numbers 22, an angel of the Lord is referred to as Hasatan because the angel of the Lord is an adversary to Balaam. So you might disagree with me, but I don't necessarily think it is helpful for you to think of this as the devil with the pitchfork walking up to God in so much as this is a courtroom scene playing out and Hasatan is like the prosecuting attorney looking to find fault with one of God's people. Now, God dares Hasatan to find fault with Job, his best guy. Now, keep in mind, all of this is happening. Job has no idea. He's just hanging out with his 7,000 sheep. And Hasatan suggests to God that Job is only righteous because he's being blessed. Of course, God, he only worships you because you are rewarding him. And so subsequently, in light of this conversation, Job loses everything. Now, if you think you're having a bad day, consider Job. In one day, he's robbed and his livestock and staff are either killed or stolen. A fire from heaven burns up all of his sheep and livestock and a mighty wind causes the collapse of his home, killing his 10 children. I mean, this seems extremely unfair. Yet Job's response is profound. Job 1 verse 20 reads, at this, Job got up and tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Wow, what a response, right? God, I don't know why any of this is happening. I can't make sense of any of it, but I'm gonna trust and worship you 
in the midst. Well done, Job. Well done, Job. Now, that's not how I would have responded. I mean, I go through KFC at 9pm at night and they say they're closed and I respond worse than that. And don't look at me, I know you've done that as well. So God was right. Job is blameless and righteous. Yet the court session does not appear to be over as Hasatan returns again. And this time he says to God, well, God, of course he's gonna continue to worship you. He's still got his health. Woo. So in light of this conversation, Job is afflicted from the soles of his feet to the tip of his head with boils. Like this is nasty. You can read about it in Job too. Wouldn't recommend. But Job is still hanging in there. He's obviously a little frustrated, but he's still hanging in there. And at this point, his wife rolls up to him and says something along the lines of, Job, what are you doing? Are you sinning? What's, What's causing all of this? Would you just curse God and let it be done with? And Job, again, Uh, responds with profound insight. He says in Job 2 verse 10, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Well done again, Job. What, What profound trust and obedience. And here's where the story gets a little bit frustrating, right? Job has three friends who come to help him out. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And Job's friends have come to support him. And their arguments and their dialogues, which consist of consolations and condemnations, make up almost all of the rest of the book. And essentially for chapter upon chapter upon chapter, they are saying something along along the lines of, Job, you are a mess and you're obviously suffering So what did you do? What did you do, Job? We know everything happens for a reason. So God must be punishing you for something. What did you do, Job? And in all of this, Job maintains his innocence. But because of all the accusations, he begins to lose it a bit. He he gets frustrated and all he wants is a fair trial. He's frustrated because he believes he's entitled to know why he's suffering. He wants his court date with God. He wants to maintain his innocence and demand justice. And boy, oh boy, will Job get his court date with God. But just before he does, we are introduced to one final character by the name of Elihu. Turn to your neighbour and say, Elihu. (laughs) Elihu is um, a bit like a fresh out of Bible college student who's just finished his thesis and reading Grudem's Systematic Theology. I mean, he has everything sorted. And he comes along and he immediately affirms what Job's friends are saying. And he condemns Job. He says, the only way to make sense of all of this suffering is because you have been wicked or because you've sinned. Now, what a nice thing to say to someone who's in extreme hardship, right? Now, after all of this, Job is none the wiser. He's a bit confused. He's frustrated. He's conflicted. And he is about to come face to face with Yahweh. And we read in Job 38, 1 through to 7 this. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this who obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. 
I'll question you, Job, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? And God continues that train of thought for the next 72 verses. Essentially, he's reminding Job, I am God and you are not. Know your place in all of this, Job. Yes, you are suffering, but you are questioning beyond your understanding. Now, Job and Yahweh continue the dialogue for a number of chapters. And as we read, it appears that though they are finding some sort of settlement, they're beginning to understand one another and get on the same page. And Job begins to realise and recognise that he he doesn't see the whole story. He doesn't see the full picture. And then we read in Job 42 verse 7, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So God affirms Job. He actually says, yeah, Job, you are right. You've been right in your frustrations. You've been right in your innocence and your suffering probably has been undeserved. And Job, your friends have spoken falsely, but you have spoken rightly about me. I know you're righteous. And as we conclude the book, God restores Job's health and and family and continues to care for him and, and bless him. Now, of course, this doesn't fix everything, right? I mean, Job lost 10 children. God gives him 10 new children. He doesn't replace, he replaces the old ones, doesn't bring the old ones back. So things are better, but they're not perfect. And of course, That's where we close the book of Job. And we are left with many more questions than we started with. Many more questions than we have answers, but I actually think that's okay. And I think that's part and parcel of the design of the book. If you've got questions, don't worry, I'm there with you. And this is where I want to pause just for a little bit. And I want us to pick up conversation with our discussion partner, And in light of what we've just read, in light of the text that we've just explored, or maybe your own lived experience, I want you to discuss this. If you could ask God one question, assuming that he would give you a response, what would it be? If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Go, take two minutes. Take another 30 seconds. Awesome. Well, no doubt in that minute or so, you just explored all of the biggest questions about life and faith. So well done. And I'm going to assume that for many of us, uh, whatever questions we had probably started with the word why. Or maybe that was your question, the word why, and that's okay. Now, with the, the time that we have left together, 
what I thought it'd be valuable to do is just to talk about some of the wisdom lessons that we can take from the story of Job. And these are some of the things that, um, as I've been reading this text, I've just been personally reflecting on, and, and I think they're going to be valuable for us. And, and the first wisdom lesson is simply this. Life isn't a simple formula. And you would have picked this up all the way through the story of Job. You know, A plus B does equal C, but A plus B doesn't always equal C, right? Sin and death has spoiled the formula. Rebellion and human autonomous will has, has kind of wrecked the recipe, so to speak. Like Tim suggested last week, there's a glitch in the matrix. And it's just like I experienced with my pork roast where I did all of the steps, but for whatever reason, things just didn't add up. And I think the story of Job wants to communicate that to us in a really powerful way. So whilst there is a connection and there can be a connection between behaviour and blessing, as Proverbs would suggest, there's not always a connection. So Job's three friends had wisdom, and theologically speaking, they were not incorrect. But I think their perspective was incomplete because they had no room for complexity. They had no room for ambiguity. They had no room for God Himself to appear and show His own wisdom. They had adopted what I simply like to call a transactional view of God. And God rebuked them for that. Uh, You'll remember he said to the three friends, you have not spoken the truth about me. Now, interestingly enough, he doesn't say that they were wrong. He says, you have not spoken the truth. You see, Job's friends were convinced that you could boil everything down into a simple formula. If you were suffering, it was because you've sinned. If you were in pain, there was a transactional reason for that. God blessed those who live rightly and God curses those who lived wickedly. Now, friends, can I just suggest to you that this transactional theology is actually lurking all over the place and it is extremely dangerous. And you ought to know that God has rejected this view. Maybe you have been told that you are suffering because you've got unrepented sin. Or maybe you've been told that that really bad thing that happened to you in your life was because you just didn't pray hard enough. Maybe you've been told that you, did, you weren't healed, you didn't receive your healing because you didn't have enough faith. And can I just say, it's rubbish. God's rejected that view. Now, I am really sorry if someone has made you the victim of your own suffering because Jesus never did that. Jesus never made us the victim of our own suffering but stepped in on our behalf. And I want you to know tonight that God has rebuked that kind of transactional theology. And can I just suggest if you are viewing God in that way, you're living on dangerous ground. Because the moment something doesn't go according to the formula, well, the whole thing is up in the air. God is bigger than a simple formula. Now, please hear me in that. That does not mean that we don't still live with wisdom and with wise behaviours. I mean, if you live in a foolish, uh, if you live in a foolish way, you're going to have to bear the consequences of your foolish behaviour. But remember, God has, God has designed the universe with, with certain formulas and functions, and there is a tie between 
behaviour and blessing, but there's not always a tie. Are you with me? So as Tim uh, last week suggested, talking about wisdom 2.0, don't think that you are wise just because you figured out how the world works. So yes, behaviour and blessing are connected, but we observe in both Ecclesiastes and Job that life isn't a simple formula. And with that in mind, secondly, something that I've been observing is God provides revelation over reason. You see, in the story of Job, he is crying out for answers. He is demanding reason, and honestly, rightly so. But yet God responds with something else. Revelation. Revelation of what? Well, revelation of who he is. Yahweh reminds Job that he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the miracle working God who is the source of life in his bones. And can I just say, and be really honest, that's frustrating at times. That's really frustrating at times. It's, it's kind of like uh, a kid going up to their parent and going, Dad, why am I grounded? And the dad responding by saying, where were you when I laid the, earth's fo- uh, the foundation of this house? Where were you when I paid all the electricity bills? Where were you? What were you doing when we took you home from the hospital? Now, That's kind of annoying, but there is some semblance of truth running through that. And for whatever reason, God seems to think that revelation, you know, His character, testimonies of His wisdom actually seem more important than reason. Jesus never promised answers. You would know in, in John 8, 32, He says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus doesn't say, then you'll know all the answers and be free because you know all the answers. No, he says the truth. And that is really difficult, right? Because I love, I don't know about you, I love to ask why. I love to ask why. But in Job's case, if God had answered why, would that have been helpful? (laughs) Honestly, I actually don't think it would have. I think it would have made him more confused and more conflicted. I mean, imagine Job sitting there and God walks in and he says, hey, Job, how are you? Sorry about everything. Hey, you've done really well. You're really righteous. You're the best man in the East, if that means anything. Sorry about the family. Sorry about the boils. But Job, um, it's complicated, man. You know, things just got out of hand with me and Hasatan. We kind of got in this bidding war, you know. Now, can I just suggest that would have complicated the matter even more. And for whatever reason, God, like any parent does, reminds Job of why he can be trusted. Yahweh reminds Job of who he is. He reminds him that all of creation finds its place in him. He reminds Job that he is but creation and he does not see the full picture. He's not the center of the universe. In fact, God seems quite uninterested in answering the why question. In John 9, Jesus is quizzed by his disciples about a blind man. They say, who sinned for this man to be born blind? Was it him or his parents? Assuming a a transactional theology. And Jesus, rather than answering why, reveals the priority of grace. He hasn't come to apportion blame. 
but instead reveal the kingdom of God and bring about God's life. And see, I think Jesus recognised that this blind man who is sitting suffering, well, answers will seldom provide comfort. Instead, it's through the presence and the revelation of God that we receive peace and grace, strength and hope. Now, it it might sound trivial, but could it be that in hardship, who we know is more important than what we know? Now, here's what I've come to realise in all of these reflections, is we often want the wisdom of God without the fear of God. In other words, I want the reward. I want A plus B to equal C without someone else having a final say on those formulas. I want A plus B to equal C. And if it doesn't, man, I deserve an explanation. I am entitled to my blessing and to my reward. But if there is one lesson that we walk away from all of the wisdom literature with, it should be this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the foundation, the starting point of wisdom. So before you start leaning into and living on wisdom 1.0, as Tim referred to it, know that the fear of God is wisdom's true foundation. So if you want the wisdom of God without the fear of God, well, you are setting yourself up for failure. If you want to live with wisdom, it would be wise to fear God. Now, normally when we talk about fear, we are talking about uh, an involuntary response to something scary, right? So if a spider was to just appear out of here, I am involuntarily gonna respond. Or if you go up somewhere up tall and you're afraid of heights, well, you have an involuntary reaction. But when the wisdom writers talk of the fear of God, I don't think they're talking about an involuntary response, but rather a voluntary positioning to revere and to trust and to submit to the will, the ways and the wisdom of God. So if I fear God, it's not so much as I squeal when He walks into the room, but rather that I understand that He is God and I am not that He holds ultimate wisdom and I do not, that He is the creator of all and I am not and He is worthy to be revered. Now, all of my wisdom and all of my understandings bow down in submission to Him. I can't have the wisdom of God without the fear of God. And you see, to live with the fear of God is, is not a passive trust, but it is a reverential relationship. You see, when Job's life begins to fall apart at the seams, he does not just sit there. He goes to the one person he knows who can actually do something about it. And that's the kind of relationship we have. I mean, Jesus, it talks about in in Hebrews, Jesus is the one who can actually do something about it. In Christ, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise or do anything about it, but someone who can and someone who has. And... Can I just say, and I apologies for the spoiler alert, inevitably, we are all going to face suffering and pain. If you haven't already, we're all gonna face unexplained hardship. 
In fact, Jesus weirdly guarantees it. But Jesus also promises that there will never come a day where he is not with us. And he extends to us the gracious invitation to trust, to trust and revere him in the good times and the bad times, to trust and revere him in sickness and in health, to trust and revere him in times of blessing and in times of affliction. Yeah, now Jesus hasn't given us answers to every little thing that's happened to us, but he does provide everything we need in and through himself. He provides peace and strength and grace and his abundant joy. And man, he provides a community. He provides brothers and sisters in Christ in whom we can walk through hardship with. And man, I hope that we are more helpful than Job's friends. You see, throughout the story of Job, there's a resounding question that's being asked and it's, will justice be served? Will justice be served? And and you know what the good news today is that in Jesus, justice has and will be served. Mercy has and will be poured out. And and, uh, no longer do I get what I deserve, but I actually receive what God deserves. So instead of death, I receive life. Instead of despair, I receive hope. And instead of judgment, I receive mercy. Jesus... God in flesh and bone stepped into the courtroom on my behalf and was trialed for me. You know, no longer is this one of us on trial, but God himself, innocent, pronounced guilty so that I might walk free, free and all things might be made right. And you know, whilst it doesn't answer all of my questions neatly and nicely, Man, it gives me great confidence to know that the one person who is at the centre of the universe, the one person who could have completely avoided suffering and pain is the one person who voluntarily stepped in to suffer. He's the one person who stepped in to face hardship simply so that I could be reconciled, so that we could be reconciled to Him. You know, I think sometimes we forget that the symbol of our faith is a cross. It's a symbol of suffering, of a God who was willing to face the thing that we ask the questions about. A God who was willing to embrace that simply so that He could be in relationship with us. And friends, yes, there is still a mess. Yes, we still have so many questions. Yes, there's still brokenness and pain and rebellion. But through Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is here and He is restoring all things. I wanna begin to close our time by reading this passage of Scripture. And man, this is a beautiful piece of Scripture. And I wanna read it from the the message paraphrase. Colossians 1, uh, verse 15 through to 20. It says this, We look at the Son, Jesus, and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the Son and see God's original purpose in everything created, for everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in Him and finds its purpose in Him. 
He was there before any of it came into existence and He holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, when it comes to us, He organises it. He holds it all together like a head does a body. He was supreme in beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, He is there towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is He, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in Him without crowding. Not only that, but all of the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of His death, His blood, the poured down from the cross. Wow. We all face pain. We all face suffering. We're all gonna face hardship. But Jesus promises that in time, all things will be made right. Justice will be served and pain will be washed away. And we're not always gonna understand why. Our life and our circumstances won't always makes sense, but Jesus invites us to trust, to live wisely by trusting in Him, to fear and with reverence submit to His will, His ways and His wisdom. In the, friend, uh, in the words of our friend Job, whether the Lord gives or whether the Lord takes, blessed be the Name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand before You and we in this moment recognise the limitations of our wisdom and our understanding. We recognise that we are but creation and You are the Almighty Creator. And God, we don't have all the answers. We, we don't know why certain things have happened or why certain things do happen. But Lord, we know You. And Lord, I thank You that You have revealed Yourself to us most perfectly in Your Son, Jesus. And that in His life and through His death, we can be reconciled to You. Lord, that we can know true wisdom, that we can trust and revere You. Lord, all we have is but what You have revealed to us. So we say thank You. We say thank You. And Lord, we take a moment as Your body, as church, as people, shoulder to shoulder to stand in the gap and pray for our brothers and sisters who are in this room right now, who are facing immense, unexplainable, unpredictable hardship. God, and I pray in the midst of all of it, God, would Your peace be so evident? Would Your presence be so real? Lord, would we recognise that even in the midst of the darkest valley, You are with us. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for who You are. We are so grateful for what You've done. And Lord, all we can do is worship You, is worship You, is to bless You and to say thank You. We're so grateful for Your Word, so grateful for the revelation You bring into our lives. 
God, as we worship, would you hear our praise? In Jesus' Name, Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, we'd love to stay connected. And the best way to do that is to subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using. To experience other messages, videos, live gatherings, or find out how you can belong at Riverview, visit us online at riverviewchurch.com. You can also like and follow us on Facebook and participate in our weekly live stream. Thanks again for listening.